From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Okay, that's the most annoying sound. This is what I live with every day. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and then play the best of what we hear for you each week. If you're going to do something, you give 120%. But Third Coast doesn't just curate great audio documentaries. We actively encourage and support producers to bring new work into the world. Midwife, if you will. And to that end, each spring, Third Coast invites a group of producers whose voices are underrepresented in the field of audio storytelling to Ragdale, an artist's residency in Lake Forest, Illinois. There, they spend five glorious days working on audio projects, unencumbered by the minutiae of daily life. During this uninterrupted week, the residents get support from one another and our fabulous mentors. Our radio residents invariably turn out great work during their time at Ragdale and beyond. And today, we are thrilled to share a few of their stories, beginning with San Francisco-based producer Hannah Kingsley Ma. While at Ragdale, she worked on this captivating story about pride, expectations, and contradiction that is the world of beauty pageants. Kingsley Ma explored these competitions in her own backyard for the making of a Chinese-American beauty queen. The first time I met Jasmine Lee, she came bounding out of an elevator, apologizing profusely for being a couple minutes late. I was up between 3 and 4.30, just triaging a broken online system. Jasmine is a 24-year-old software engineer. Her office is in the middle of San Francisco's downtown, among some of the giants of the tech world, Twitter and Uber and Square. She takes me into a room full of free snacks so that we can conspiratorially stuff our pockets with cashews and coconut water, the good expensive stuff. Like a lot of people working in tech here in the Bay Area, she stays late and comes home to her apartment in the Mission near the bustle of the BART station. But on a handful of nights, in the quiet of the women's bathroom, she transforms into someone else entirely. Just like Friday, actually, I had an appearance to go to after work. And so I lugged all my stuff with me to work. And after I got on my meeting, I started changing the bathroom. When I came out, I was in my chi pao. I was on like full hair and makeup. And so, this, you know, one of the managers on a, on a, on a team was like, Jasmine, where are you off to? Why are you, why are you dressed like that? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm now off to see my people. By day, Jasmine's writing code. By night, she's fulfilling her duties as the crowned winner of the Miss Chinatown USA pageant. The pageant's been a national event since the late 50s. In San Francisco, the Chinese New Year's celebration has some pleasant sidelights. One of the pleasantest is choosing the new Miss Chinatown USA. This is news footage from 1960. In it, women promenade on stage for the benefit of the judges and audience. In silk cheng-sam or qi pao a traditional Chinese dress, plus long white gloves and a whole mess of hairspray. In 2018, the Trangsam are sequined and sparkle in the light, and the women have swapped their bouffants for beachy waves, like the ones you see on The Bachelor. But the core message of the pageant remains the same, a dizzying celebration of both pure Americana and the contestants' Chinese heritage. Tonight, I'm here to humbly express my gratitude to my ancestors who came before me because I am their new generation of beauty. 
works is this. Women participate in local beauty pageants in Chinatowns across the country, and the qualifiers come to San Francisco for the main title. This pageant hit the national stage in the thick of the Cold War, and just a little more than a decade after America had forcibly incarcerated thousands of Japanese Americans during World War II. It was a time when Chinese Americans still wanted to prove that their foreignness didn't pose a threat to mainstream America. The Miss Chinatown pageant, which was modeled on the Miss America pageant, was a way for the Chinese community to perform their Americanness and model a form of assimilation for the hundreds of people watching by showing what an idealized version of Chinese-American femininity should look like. The winner would become a celebrated ambassador for the Chinese-American community, visiting family associations and benevolent societies, attending banquets and social functions, promoting businesses, and maybe most visibly, marching in the city's famous Lunar New Year parade. Years later, people from the neighborhood would remember what color dress Miss Chinatown wore to the festival and what it felt like to be part of the throng, looking up at the queen running on top of a slow-moving car in the middle of the exploding firecrackers and the lion dancers and the little kids kicking their feet out in unison. This year was the first Miss Chinatown pageant I'd ever attended. I got to watch Jasmine clinch the title. She was one of 14 contestants, all of whom had to be unmarried, with no kids, and having secured a sponsor who could cover the $2,000 entry fee. And each one was in it for different reasons. My immigrant experience taught me to be adventurous and resilient. I'm a Chinese adoptee, born in Jiangsu, China, and adopted by my American family in Maryland. Although I grew up without my Chinese roots, I have always loved to study Chinese. I'm here today to show my pride in my Chinese heritage and because I am a new generation of beauty. Sitting high up in the balcony of the Grand Herbst Theater, I couldn't deny feeling a little uneasy. Maybe it was just because the world of beauty pageants was so new to me. The highly choreographed glitz and glamour of it, the swimsuits and the sexy dance numbers. But it wasn't just the sheer novelty of the experience that was making me feel uncomfortable. Maybe this is the part where I explain a little about myself and why I was interested in the pageant in the first place. I don't exactly fit the stereotypical mold of a beauty queen. I'm a clog-wearing public radio reporter with a casual approach to brushing my own hair. But Jasmine and I have a couple things in common. We both grew up here in San Francisco. We're actually from the same neighborhood, the Outer Richmond, considered by some a satellite Chinatown. It's full of dim sum parlors and Asian grocery stores and a robust Chinese population. And like Jasmine, I identify as Chinese-American, although with some few important qualifiers. My grandparents immigrated to America from China in the wake of World War II, but I'm also half-white. I wouldn't actually be allowed into this pageant because it's strictly patrilineal, and my dad's parents fled Germany and Poland to come here. So that's all the stuff I was bringing with me as I watched the pageant unspool. And there were times I felt like I was witnessing the weirdest parts of being a woman interplay with the weirdest parts of being a model minority. And by that I mean the expectation to be diligent and demure and hardworking, to never rock the boat, to put everyone at ease, and to always be smiling. But then I met Jasmine and her family. 
and they changed the way I felt about the pageant completely. Hello everyone, my name is Jasmine Lee. I'm 24 years old and I was born and raised here in San Francisco. I'm here today to fulfill my childhood dream of becoming Miss Chinatown because she represents the Chinese American community and because I'm a new generation of beauty. Jasmine's dad grew up here in San Francisco. And the various beauty queens he saw every year at the Chinese New Year Parade, they made a big impression on him as a kid. I always thought it was impossible for someone to be Miss Chinatown unless you're unusually gifted, you know? Yeah. Like, it's like, a, it's like a, to be able to win it out of everybody. It's like yes, a really yes. big deal. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, well, so what's it like now to have two daughters who've both won it? Oh, that was a like, uh, um, very rare, yeah. sort of incredible. You heard right. Jasmine is the second in her family to secure the title. Before her came her sister Crystal, who was three years older, and was Miss Chinatown in 2010. Crystal, who went on to make pageant history. Who will be Miss America? Is it Miss California? <laughs> or is it back-to-back Miss New York's? I mean, we're, we're both so proud. We're making history right here, standing here um, as Asian Americans, so we're really proud. And you should be. Congratulations. What you're hearing is the sound of Crystal almost becoming the country's first Chinese-American Miss America back in 2014. She got pretty darn close. And the woman she lost to, Miss New York, she was also Asian, Indian-American. As you can imagine, the internet noticed. Online and in Twitter, on Twitter, there were some mean comments just like, wow, I can't believe the top two, one of which, you know, sh- you know should have run a quickie mart and the other one is, was like a North Korean refugee. They, they thought I was North Korean. I just have to be like a lily pad and let it roll right off. One thing you need to know about Crystal is that she's tough. At a young age, she figured out a way to toggle between ethnic and more mainstream pageants pretty seamlessly. When I was a teen, I competed in Miss America's Outstanding Teen, which was in Florida, and that was my first real experience with understanding that the rest of the United States is not like the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, we grew up in a very Chinese neighborhood where my middle school was mostly Chinese people, so I was like in this bubble of Chinese Americans. When I went to Florida when I was 16, I had this woman who came up to me. She was from the South. She, she comes up real close and says, oh, aren't you just the most darling Oriental girl? You're just so darling. Like, you know, and at the time I was thinking Oriental, like I'm not, like, like you mean like a rug, a lamp? Oh, like a ramen flavor? I wasn't personally offended, but it was just, it was a moment where I realized, okay, like I'm definitely different and people know me as that one Chinese girl. Crystal explained to me that there are different cultural expectations for the different pageants. Like in the mainstream pageants, they want you to be super tan. In the Chinese pageants, they prefer if you're really pale. In mainstream pageants, they want you to be brash and political. Maybe the question you get is whether or not the use of chemical weapons in Syria should call for U.S. intervention. In the Miss Chinatown USA pageant, you're not really supposed to be super outspoken. The questions are more general, like what does inner beauty mean to you? We have to, like, switch personas, like we switch outerwear. Like, oh, I'm going to wear this down jacket one day. Okay, I'm going to wear this peacoat one day. And it's very much the same thing. This disorienting back and forth, making yourself look different, sound different, act different, for a body of judges evaluating you based on their criteria, 
It's a pretty good metaphor for the kind of code switching many Americans with immigrant backgrounds have to do, whether or not they're beauty queens. And Crystal's pretty shrewd about it. Through pageants, she won scholarship money that helped fund her tuition at Stanford. And the pageants opened doors for her. Right now, she's hosting a TV show called This is San Francisco. For her, it's tactical. I was really careful not to be like that one ethnic girl who was like constantly pushing some sort of cultural agenda um, because that's something that I don't think a lot of people can relate to. When I met Crystal, I was instantly taken by her. She's enigmatic, she's really funny, and she's unapologetic about her ambition, what she wants out of the world. But some of the things she said about being a person of color in the whitewashed world of beauty pageants, they took me aback, like this. You can't blame American pageants for celebrating whiteness because that's, those are the people who first came over and like on the Mayflower, like they were the ones, they were there, they're the incumbent culture creators. And I did come here after them. And my family came here after them. So in a sense, I, I totally get where they're coming from. And I'm not, like, it, the onus is on me to assimilate. The onus isn't on me to preach to them to make this a better place for me now, um, if that makes sense. Because that's, like, an, my, the immigrant in me talking. When she first said this to me, I thought it was extreme. But there's also something in here that's not totally surprising. Even in my own family story, there exists that constant pressure to assimilate. For instance, my grandparents immigrated here from China, but they didn't teach their kids any of their native language. They wanted them to be unmistakably American. They converted to Quakerism. They kept a low profile and tried as best they could to blend in with their surroundings. And this story isn't specific to my family. Assimilation has been a strategy for success for Chinese immigrants since they first arrived here in large numbers, back in the late 1800s during the gold rush, when cheap Chinese labor was used to build the railroads and work in the mines. Chinese immigrants became one of the most reviled groups in the country. Politicians made their careers off of maligning them. People thought they were responsible for taking American jobs. Chinese immigrants were harassed, discriminated against, threatened with violence. They were the recipients of an early travel ban. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 barred the entry of Chinese immigrants into this country for decades. That's the historical backdrop to Chinese immigrants first making this country their home. And that legacy of racism reverberates today. Crystal says that when she was a kid growing up, her mom, an immigrant from Taiwan, wanted to make sure that her kid was prepared to live in a country that might find her difference threatening. So her mom was hard on her. I just know growing up, my mom was very stressed out too. Like she was supporting the entire family and, you know, my father was um, a small business owner. And so I know my mom had a lot, of, a lot of stress, but it was more an overall philosophy of if you're going to do something, you give 120%. And if you are Chinese-American... Sorry to say, but no one's going to roll out the red carpet and let opportunities come and fall at your feet. You actually have to hustle for it because someone next to you who has invisible advantages that you don't is going to give 100% already. So you have to give 120 to get the same opportunity as that person next to you with the invisible advantage. And my mom was very, I think, excellent and skilled at, at beating that into me when I was a kid. Crystal said this philosophy shaped her whole worldview. 
Like I grew up kind of like, oh, the world out there is scary and everyone's going to try to screw me. So I have to go work hard to really get my way and be clever about things. And you know, you know what I mean? It was, it's just a classic immigrants shield where you have to, you have to have that mental toughness. Part of that mental toughness meant having a more complicated relationship with her mom. My mom, like, laid out the roadmap, and our relationship was totally second. Like, I didn't, I, I was really, there were times where I was like, oh, my mom was driving me crazy, and I just wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to her. A non-tiger, yeah, 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 no, no. I'm a mom, you're, you're the evil genius. It all worked out according to plan, right? I should mention that Crystal is saying all of this in front of her mom, Wendy who was sitting next to us on a couch, listening patiently. But I'm, I'm saying we did not talk for, like, we were not as close as we are now. We were not friends. Whereas a lot of my Caucasian friends, like, they, you know, they're best friends with their mothers. And their mothers would never think of doing anything to risk the relationship because it's like, oh, Tiffany's not going to talk to me. Or, uh, you know, Jillian can't not talk to me, right? I love so, that your white girl names are Tiffany and Jillian. <laughs> 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 Tiffany's actually a very Chinese name as well. But you, you, you get it, you get it, right, right? It's like, uh, yeah. Tammy's not going to talk to me. Like she's not going to tell me about, like, all the boys she oh, likes. Exactly, it, exactly. And Tiger Moms look at that and they're like... We don't want that. Like, I, dude, my daughter's not my friend. My job is to get her set up in life even if it means that she hates me in the, in the short term. This is where Crystal's mom chimes in. I, I knew that she, she hates me, but, but it's how I, I feel that's uh, my job. Did it ever feel painful to be that strict? Oh, of course. Of course, when, when, uh, when I see that uh, it's ruining our, our lives, you know, temporary, and there are times I just want to run away too. Crystal and Jasmine's mom, Wendy, is a bubbly woman who offers me tea as soon as I walk in the door. In anticipation of my visit, she's laid out her daughter's pageant memorabilia all over the living room, their sashes and plaques and glowing headshots. It was her who really encouraged Crystal to get involved in pageants. She didn't want me to be a swimmer because it would make my shoulders big and therefore hard to find a boyfriend. So she put me into dance, she put me into ballet. Ballet was very becoming for a young woman. That's, that's also a negotiation of um, value systems because my mom was born in Taiwan and you know women back then have a very specific archetype for success. I mean, some would even call it like, you know, being a trophy wife is comfortable and secure and stable. And so I think my mom wanted me to at least have that as a backup. But Wendy would also be the first to say that her daughters are different and had different experiences of childhood. Crystal, the big sister, was under more scrutiny. Jasmine, the little sister, got to be a little more laid back. And so Crystal, she pushed Jasmine in the same way her mom pushed her. You know, my mom's a tiger mom, so like I'm pretty much a tiger mom in training. And so, you know, Jasmine is, she represents me. So I wanted her to do well because if she didn't do well or if she, if she looked like she was untrained, that would have been, everyone would have said, well, she's Crystal's sister. Like, why is she walking like that? Or why isn't she, why isn't she in better shape? Like, didn't Crystal tell her to, like, get to the gym? And so, I, although I, w- I would say Jasmine did all of the work. I asked Jasmine, who was also sitting next to me as I spoke with Crystal, if this felt like a more extreme model of femininity to grow up with. Uh, yes, I think, I think it, it was um, to grow up as 
a kid in high school already have all these expectations of like what society deems beautiful and to have to abide by that so young. I had wondered why Jasmine might want to participate in this pageant. Jasmine, who lived in a co-op at UC Berkeley. Jasmine, whose ears jangled with the weight of silver hoops and studs. Jasmine, who cracked wry jokes about the patriarchy. She told me the pageant doesn't mean the same thing it did 50 years ago. Back when the pageant first started, you know, the people who were participating in it probably thought, you know, probably it helped, probably helps them feel more American. But today, it helps me feel more Chinese. For Jasmine, a second-generation San Franciscan and an ABC, American-born Chinese, it means a lot to become a part of Chinatown's history. She likes visiting the family associations or helping raise money for the local Chinese hospital. She likes meeting other Chinese women from all over the country. And she also knows it's just one part of her life. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't wear fake lashes every day. I don't, you know, <laughs> wave consistently when I'm walking down the street. <laughs> I don't greet every single person like, hi, how are you? Welcome. Happy Chinese New Year. <laughs> but she's careful to put forward the image that she knows the pageant wants. She tells me a story about an appearance she had to make. The day after the pageant, the very first morning, I had an interview. And I have a ton of um, ear piercings um, that I got when I was in Berkeley, <laughs> living in the co-ops. <laughs> and my friend, who was helping me prepare for the interview, told me to take them off. She was like, those piercings are good for you. And, you know, it's, it's a Jasmine thing, but it's not a Miss Chinatown thing. You have to represent us. You're no longer yourself. You're representing the organization. This is a service position. And I just said, yes, you're absolutely correct. So there's a bit of, you know, that, that's an example of the sort of balance that I'm struggling to find, right? Because I, I do think that I, I want to be true to myself and um, questioning whether there exists a feminine ideal. Um, but I also understand that this is a service position, right? Like, uh, as Miss Chinatown, I'm representing the greater community, the organization, and I have to do that well, and I have to respect that. I think that the stereotype for Chinese women is to be submissive, and that's something that we are still dealing with today. At its best, the Miss Chinatown pageant is a space where Chinese-American women can feel pride in their immigrant identity and network with one another to feel a sense of community in this diasporic sprawl of a country. At its worst, the pageant serves as a reification of some of the most harmful stereotypes about Asian women, that we exist to please others and should do so at the expense of our own individuality. I wanted to walk away from this experience having a clearer opinion of which version seemed closer to the truth, whether this pageant was a good thing or a bad thing. What I landed on was that it was messy. And honestly, that felt right, because existing between two cultures is messy. Here's Crystal again. It's sort of like the oxygen we breathe. It's always been there. You can't really see it. But yeah, like we are a Chinese-American family and everything from the slippers we're wearing to the fact that we can smell like rice cooking, right? It's just, that's just a part of our DNA. And, and where I see myself speaking more about it is because my, my boyfriend of seven years is um, Caucasian. And it's really important to me that like if we were to have children one day that they speak Mandarin and that they know that I am possible and they are possible because of immigrants who came over and had nerves of steel. Do you feel like that's the value of the Miss Chinatown pageant? And you're like, this is a legacy that I'm part of. Like, 
it's a personal legacy, but it's also, it's bigger than me. Yeah, absolutely. It's way bigger than me. And there have been Miss Chinatown USAs who've since passed on and like their names are always going to be in the program books. Even if some of the questions and answers end up being kind of cheesy and being very like pro Chinese identity, almost to a point where it's almost facetious. It's better to have something like that than not. At the end of the ceremony this year, a Miss Chinatown USA from years back sang memory as images of decades worth of winners flash behind her. Just picture it now, a long lineage of Chinese beauty queens being memorialized to a show tune made famous by a bunch of dancing cats, and then eventually Barbara Streisand. This was the pageant in a nutshell, a space of contradiction, of conformity, of invention, of change. If nothing else, the pageant serves as a potent reminder to Chinese American women everywhere. There were ones who came before us. They wore the crown and they passed it on. The Making of a Chinese-American Beauty Queen was produced by Hannah Kingsley Ma for KALW in San Francisco. It was mixed by Gabe Graben and edited by Jen Qian. Hannah started reporting on this story before coming to their Third Coast radio residency in 2018, where she spent the week writing, fine-tuning, and putting together the fantastic piece you just heard. The residency showed me exactly what kind of artistic community I value and want to be a part of, Hannah told us. One where people feel like their voices and their work is being heard and respected. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. Of all the stuff we hear, we save the very best for you. And this week, that stuff is the handiwork of three Third Coast radio residency alums who've each spent a week of peace, quiet, and collaboration at Ragdale, an artist retreat in Lake Forest, Illinois, to work on their audio projects uninterrupted by the outside world. And these producers continue to make standout audio stories that inspire us in the years since they've left the radio residency. Our next two stories are just that, work from residency alums that we just had to share. Producer James T. Green is a self-admitted lover and early adopter of new technology, which in this case is a good thing, a very good thing, because it really loved him back. Here is little wrist computer. The first time I almost died was way back in 2014. It was kind of a wake-up call because at that time, I had a really fucked up relationship with my body. I used to binge. 
I used to purge. I used to not eat. I used to overeat. I was working at my dream job, and I was showing art at galleries I seriously looked up to when I was a kid. On the outside, everything looked amazing, but on the inside, I was feeling like garbage. Until one day, my body was like, nah, not today, fam. I was riding my bike home, and out of nowhere, like, my chest got super tight. Everything got really blurry, and I fell off my bike. Imagine somebody, like, reaching into your chest, and while they're there, they're just grabbing, like, a fistful of your lungs, and they are not letting go. At that moment, like, I honestly thought I was going to die. I woke up and I saw somebody coming towards me. Like, they were trying to help me. I was, like, all on the ground. I was so confused. I had no idea what happened. So I texted my partner, Sine, to let her know what was going on. And then I went to bed, hoping I could sleep it off. I heard you get up. And I was like, are you okay? And you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just got to go to the bathroom. That's my partner, Sine. So I just rolled over, but I didn't fall back asleep. I was standing in front of the toilet, and then all of a sudden my legs just felt like jelly. And my vision just crossfaded into black as I leaned forward. Everything went completely dark, and I lost track of everything, like myself, reality, the world around me. And I heard this loud, like, bang. I freaked out and I got up and I ran into the bathroom and I just looked straight at you and you had literally were on the back wall where the window was and you had tipped the toilet over slightly. What the hell? I was like, what the hell? And I ran to you and started screaming your name and you didn't answer. started screaming and like hitting your face and yeah yelling James 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 get up get up and then I put my finger underneath your nose to see if you're still breathing you weren't so I freaked out and I ran back to our bedroom grabbed my phone and hit nine one and then I kept yelling your name as I was hitting it while I was out I I don't really remember much, but as corny as it sounds, I remember seeing this light. And this light was shaped like a keyhole, and I was floating towards it, like floating upwards. And the only things I heard in this moment were these fading, like ethereal sounds. And surrounding this light was like a magazine collage of my life to this point. It was like a flashback montage. It was clips and snippets things I couldn't remember and at this point I was getting really close to the light and I was grabbing towards it and I was so close and then Sine woke me up and then you were like Sine, Sine what what happened what what are you doing what's going on so she cleaned me up and convinced me to go to the hospital 
And at that point, my insurance was pretty trash. So we decided to save a little bit of money and call a cab. The whole ride, I'm wheezing and I'm freaking out. And not only just because I really can't breathe, but our driver, he just happened to get out of heart surgery. So he was talking about that over and over again. We finally make it to the hospital and they wheel me to triage and they take my vitals and they do a bunch of tests. Come to find out, I had a pulmonary embolism. There were multiple blood clots that somehow developed in my leg. They traveled up to my lungs and then they hit my brain. I had to get all of them removed. Then you called and let me know. That's my mom. And when I heard your voice, I knew it was very serious. I think you said you, you weren't sure if you were going to make it. And I, th- I remember you saying to pray. Try not to cry because I could tell you were afraid. When you hear your child, you know the severity of how sick they are. And when I heard the tone in your voice and how scared you were, it's just very scary. So the transporters come into the room, and this whole time, I'm, I'm terrified. Like, I was at the hands of these people. I had no idea who they were, and at this point, I didn't trust them. I hear these snippets of what the doctors are saying. It's a collective of four, and their faces are covered by these masks, and they're rushing me down the hallway, and they're saying words, and they're throwing around phrasing. I have no idea what they mean. And aside of these brief flashes of their names on these badges at the corner of my eye, I have no idea who they are. I get to the room and they carry me from the bed to this cold, hard table and they strip off my robe and I'm bare. I'm powerless. I'm butt naked on this table. They hook me up to a new IV and they give me a sedative drip. I smell smell, a very familiar one. It's soapy, it's synthetic, it's shaving cream, and a cold razor glides across my groin. The sedative starts to kick in. While I'm lying on this bed, essentially stoned out of my mind, I look to the left and I see this large flat screen and it's guiding the doctors around as they work under my skin and I see what my insides look like for the first time. These piles of yellow and pink, like ground beef and cotton candy. At this point I've always thought of my body as something mythical, like all those medical illustrations were just imagination and Seeing it in person, you know, knowing that this is how my body actually operates. I mean, maybe it was the meds talking at this point, but it was a really beautiful sight. I was seeing this body, this one that I've been at war with for years, vulnerably squishing on this screen. So the procedure went a-okay. I mean, they released me after a couple days and I was given a blood thinner. They thought it was a freak accident and since I was young and healthy... They thought I should be fine. Before all this happened, I honestly thought everything was moving in, like, a perfect direction. Like, I thought I had the cheat codes to life. But just after that, 
I ended up losing my aunt. Uh, she ended up having a blood clot problem. Uh, she didn't die from that, but she had passed away real suddenly. And after that, I ended up losing my best friend to cancer. And everything felt uncertain. And anyone who knows me can tell you, like, I don't do well with uncertainty. So chalk it up to living with anxiety. I mean, shout out to my psychiatrist. But maybe that's why I really love technology. Technology was something I felt like I could control. Ever since I was little, I used to do things around the house like program VCRs and tinker with alarm clocks. That's that smart brother in you. So that was my little sister, Jada. She's, of course, referencing the iconic 2002 film, Undercover Brother, and that bumbling little side character called Smart Brother. I developed a device that allows you to absorb the whole of white culture in mere seconds. I call it Caucasian vision. Growing up, literally all of my interests revolved around tech. I learned this program called Print Shop over in elementary school to make probably the best state report about Maryland that my classmates and anyone else has ever seen. In junior high, I remember I wrote a paper for my English class about this small little search engine called Google. Maybe you never heard of it. And in high school, I remember I made these like mini disc playlists uh, featuring like pretty much the hottest songs of those times, um, including Lil Flip. This is the way we Shout out to Houston. And in college, like at that point, I decided that, man, I am specifically going to work in technology in my art practice. And I started making these really weird sound art pieces um, in like these apartment galleries all throughout Chicago. Ooh, oh boy. Uh, I haven't played that in a while. Whew. It was wild. I mean, tech news was my sport. This was my LeBron. This was my Jeter. Like, I was following megabytes, megahertz, megapixels, like, faster, thinner, smarter. I I devoured podcasts and RSS feeds for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then, in 2014, I heard about this new device I had to have. Something that I thought would finally solve the anxieties I had about my body. Apple Watch is the most personal device we've ever created. Cue me drooling all over the screen of my phone while probably chilling out on my lunch break somewhere. At this time, I didn't have any kind of money for this watch, but I was determined I needed this thing. Of course, this led to the one place in the world where you can get fairly new gadgets for fairly cheap. At the risk that it may or may not have been stolen, do you know what I'm talking about? We're talking about Craigslist. There, on Clinton Street, underneath this damp-ass viaduct, by the blue line, I had that little white box. I wouldn't spend my money on an Apple Watch, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I was feeling really sappy about this, not... Everybody had the same excitement. You texted me and you were like, oh, girl, like, I just got the new Apple Watch. 
it's just a cell phone on your arm. How can you communicate on a smartwatch? Like, <laughs> I just don't think it's pretty. It's kind of ugly. Except for my dad. Man, I thought it was cool. I thought it was uh, interesting technology. So I went out and got me an Apple Watch because it had a phone on it. I didn't want to use the phone. Really? That, so that was really the only reason why? You just, like, wanted to use, you wanted to use the phone on your wrist? Yeah, and I'm an I'm, I'm Apple product guy. <laughs> I mean, you're getting a phone call right now. As... But whatever my family thought, like, I just loved how this little black pebble came to life on my wrist. I started tracking my exercise and my meals, and I realized how this data correlated with how I felt. I got in tune with the rhythms of my body, and, you know, I look back on days when I ate a little too much, and I realized how sluggish I was, and how energetic I felt after a bike ride, so I ended up pushing myself even harder, and I went on even longer rides, and I noticed how my heart rate dropped with more exercise, and how my blood pressure went down during my checkups. I knew how fast my heart beat when I was having a panic attack and how slow it beat when I was comfortably working through a problem. I felt like for the first time, I had control of myself and my anxiety, and I had the charts and data to prove it. I I remembered how I felt on that operating table, and... You know, when I looked into the TV to my left and I saw the insides of my body, I saw the way that it moved and it reacted to my breath, how it moved along with my heartbeat and how it reacted to the stress of being on that table. I realized in that moment, I saw what I was really made of. And this little watch like felt like the closest way I could tap back into that feeling. So years passed, and I moved to New York later. The watch just became an extension of me. I can't even remember a day without it. Like I put it on when I woke up, and I took it off right before I went to sleep. And tracking my health and exercise just became as normal as breathing, and it just faded into the background. And each year, you know, it improved with software updates, and a couple new features were added, and the updates were great and all, but a lot of times they were mostly forgettable. But there was one that caught my attention. So we're adding a feature. And now Apple Watch will notify you when it detects an elevated heart rate and you don't appear to be active. I was geeked, but it didn't support my old watch. And frankly, I didn't want to buy a new one. I mean, shout out to freelancers. So I ended up finding this app called HeartWatch. And it did the same tracking and alerts, but it worked on my older watch. So I loaded it on and just went about my day. So days later, some really weird shit starts to happen. So I start to get these really fast heart palpitations. Like, my heart is beating out of my chest. And I didn't really think much of it. Like, I have anxiety, you know? And... At this point, work was really, really bugging me out. 
I kept getting these elevated heart rate alerts just all throughout the day. Um, I'm, I'm caught in this dance. Like, it felt like I, I didn't know if it was anxiety or if it was something else. And at this time, like, my contract at work was ending, and I really didn't know where I was going to go next. And I was getting really, really stressed. I ended up just chalking it up to that, and I kept it moving. But my watch kept telling me something's wrong. Listen. Pay attention. Meanwhile, my brain is saying, it's just anxiety. Get over it. Stop being so hard on yourself. I felt like somebody had reached into my chest, grabbed my lungs, and started to squeeze. I can't ignore this anymore. I know exactly what this is. So I get to the doctor, and she thinks it's just anxiety, but... I really know, like, it's something more. And I pulled out my phone. I showed her the data um, that I had on my heart rate. I, you know, I showed my usual, you know, pretty low resting heart rate at this point. Um, and all these, like, ridiculous spikes that were happening throughout the day. And I told her about my previous pulmonary. And I told her that this was really serious and I need to get a CT scan. So she ended up putting the order in. You had texted me. Hold on. I think I still have it. You said the scan came back positive. I have a couple clots. So they are calling me an ambulance to go to the ER. But they want me to be still because they don't want any of them to dislodge. The first time I went to the hospital for these clots... It was in the back of a cab, and the driver was way too chatty. To be honest, like, it was dangerous as fuck. I mean, I had no idea what was going on. My partner was freaking out. Hell, I I was freaking out. This time was different, though. Even though I was strapped up to a stretcher with these medical devices all dinging around me, I was calm, like, meditative even. Because this little wrist computer made me listen to my body. I watched as Manhattan unfolded behind me through this tiny window in the back of an ambulance. Cars parted in our wake as we zipped through traffic. Like, weirdly in that moment, like, it was just a brief second, but it felt like this city, this this chaotic place, like, everything else, like, around my mind was in control. Like, the city was moving on our terms. I arrive at the hospital, and I'm hooked up with blood thinners in an IV. And I get the usual barrage of questions that come with going to a teaching hospital. Students coming up with their clipboards and iPads with boxes to check. 
asking, what led you here? Wow, you're so young. Or, that's so weird. But the last one really stuck with me. He said, if you didn't listen to that notification on your watch, it would have been fatal. So I had to tell my mom again that I was back in the hospital. And I told her, I think I said, what'd you say again? She's like, he's in the hospital, but it's not as bad as last time and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, he's in the hospital for what? He has another pulmonary embolism. And then I had to tell her, I said, okay, give me a little bit. And then I had to sit myself down. Because I'm like, oh my God. It was a lot. But then when she kept saying, it's really not that bad, he caught it. And then she kind of told me about the the watch and they got you from the hospital. And then I think you text us around the time I had got her phone call. And your text was, no big deal. (laughs) I'm like, no big deal? Did this kid just say no big deal? And he's had a pulmonary embolism? Are you kidding me? But this is serious. To be fair, Mom, I mean, I didn't think it was a big deal. I caught it early. I didn't have to get surgery. I only had to stay a night. And I left the hospital with just like a bruise on my arm and glue all over my body from EKG pads and a lifetime subscription to a very expensive blood thinner. Shout out to Big Pharma, but not really. Tech was always this hobby for me. I loved making it bend to my wills and making it do whatever I wanted. It gave me this illusion of control. But sometimes technology can be really shitty. I mean, the devices are essentially $1,000 glass sandwiches, and my phone thinks I should say duck instead of fuck, and echo chambers just might cause the downfall of our current society and democracy. And the same goes for the watch. I mean, I can't predict these blood clots, and I have to live with these things for the rest of my life, and I can't even tell the difference between them and my own anxiety, but this watch can. This widely mocked wearable can tell me the difference between life and death. Thank goodness this, like, techie, nerdy thing you're into is actually helpful Good Lord, there's a gadget that really, (laughs) really did something that I approve of. So I'm grateful, right? But I'm still wary about the ways tech is taking over my own life. My phone controls how I get around a new city. My computer controls pretty much everything I do to earn a paycheck. And now I have yet one more dependence on another piece of tech in my life. Thank you, God, for that app. Without that app, my child may not have been here. And to be honest, I don't know how I feel about that. Little Wrist Computer was produced by James T. Green for the podcast Welcome to Macintosh, a tiny show about a big fruit company. James attended the first ever Third Coast Radio Residency in 2016.
In our next story, independent Chicago-based producer Erisa Apentaku weaves the past and the present together to paint a portrait of a transitional time in her life. It caught our ears and captured our hearts. Here is Gargling. Check, check. Hello? This is me in 2017. Okay, it's 11.30 at night, Thursday, January 19th, and we're going to take a tour of my house. I'm talking to me in the future. This is my childhood home, where I now live, with my dad, who has cancer. We walk out into the hallway. Can you hear that? You can't hear it yet, but you will. We'll get to that later. The reason I'm doing this audio tour for no one. Do you hear that sound? It sounds like someone is gargling. The house is gargling. If I had to describe the house in one sentence, I would say it gargles and it's full of junk. At the end of 2016, my two sisters and I learned my dad had cancer. I moved back home to help him. I'd seen him two months prior, but in that amount of time, it seemed like his whole life had deteriorated. He had multiple myeloma, a blood cancer, that weakened his bones. He broke his back because of this and couldn't get around on his own. Dad, I'm recording. I had to help him to the bathroom. You don't have to say anything. Do you want to say anything? There was a period of time when he couldn't even wipe his own ass. Okay, we're now in Dad's room. Used to be Mom and Dad's room, but that's a different story. If it were just the cancer, it probably would have been fine. But Dad was also getting a divorce from Mom. It had been dragging on for over two years at this point. If we enter the bathroom section of Dad's room, it's very nice. There's this jumbo jacuzzi-like bath, which... Honestly, if you tried to use it, probably sludge would come out. So that's kind of gross. The bath was being, was not used enough to clear the sludge out. If you used it every day about three times a week, I'm sure in about three or four weeks would have cleaned out all the sludge. Or the little flakes of uh, tissue that comes out. The flakes of tissue that the house is shedding. Cancer, divorce... And then there's the IRS. Dad failed to pay taxes for several years and now owed an amount in back taxes he literally couldn't pay. So he was negotiating. I could go into the garage, but um, it's pretty boring. There's just a bunch of crap in it. Yep, there's no cars. There's just boxes of junk. Cancers, divorce, IRS, and boxes and boxes of junk collected over decades by people who no longer lived here. And of course, the problem with the pipes. The plumbing is literally imploding. Okay, that's the most annoying sound. This is what I live with every day, the sound of this house trying to kill itself. Or rather, the sound of the house just dying. The house was falling apart, like my dad's life, and like my life trying to help him. It's been two years since that recording. I called a plumber and the gargling stopped. I donated and sold three quarters of the old junk. Mom and dad's divorce got finalized. But the IRS are still not satisfied, and dad still has cancer. It was in remission but came back. He's pretty self-sufficient now, 
but needs me to open jars and cans and bottles for him. My life hasn't stalled, like I thought it would two years ago when I made this recording. Instead, it kind of flourished. But I wonder what new opportunities await me if I were to move out. I would move out if I knew Dad would be okay on his own. But I don't think he would. So I called, and the exterminator appointment is Thursday morning. The other day, I found mouse poop in the kitchen. Gargling was produced by Irissa Apentaku, who was a Third Coast Radio resident in 2018. She's currently working as the executive producer of radio at Southside Weekly, a magazine and radio show dedicated to supporting cultural and civic engagement on the city's South Side. We're proud to say that you can hear the work of our Third Coast Radio Residency alums in shows all over your podcast feed and radio dial. Their stories have been featured on NPR, Latino USA, The Heart, and Snap Judgment, just to name a few. And of course, we absolutely love to share their work here on ReSound. To listen to more stories produced by the fabulous alumni of our radio residency, and to learn more about the program, head to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Radio Residency is made possible with support from the Ragdale Foundation and the Third Coast Fund. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco is our production intern. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>